We've come to the end of Mark's gospel today. And that's kind of sad for me because I have had a great time going through this incredible book. Well, as one who has dabbled in a bit of writing myself, <coughs> it's hard to know how to open or entitle, but perhaps the hardest thing is to know how to end a piece of literature. Well, we'll look at the way that Mark closes this story, this vigorous, dynamic, fast-paced account of the ministry of Jesus. We get plunged right into the action at the beginning and with the same sort of <clears throat> electricity, Mark ends the account. We are going to pick up the story at, uh, after the death of Jesus in chapter 15. Well, we're going to uh, start at verse 40, but I'm going to back up just to the very moment of death in verse 37. Okay, so you can follow along in the reading uh, in the Pew Bible on page 1016, if you wish. So, recap from last week, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil, or the curtain of the temple, was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James the Less, and Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, and they were, there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, or the Sanhedrin, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate. Pilate's the Roman governor or the prefect. And asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Sal Salome, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb they saw a young man sitting at the right, 
wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You were looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's where the story ends, my friends. People were so uncomfortable with that ending in the early history of the church that someone with uh, access to Matthew and uh, to Luke and to John's Gospel made a summary of the other stuff that happened after the resurrection of Jesus and attached it to the end of Mark to make it a little cleaner, a little more complete feeling. But Mark himself, and there is absolutely no doubt from the scientific uh, uh, examination of uh, textual criticism where the manuscript evidence is compared and the most authentic original uh, reading is discerned that Mark has ended his work with that eighth verse of chapter 16. So, putting our story here and this ending of the story as far as Mark takes it, Up until this point, that 37th verse in chapter 15, where Jesus dies, has been two comparatively long chapters of the passion narrative or the story of Jesus' suffering in which there is this steady descent into the very depth of wickedness and evil and darkness. Jesus has been subjected to everything awful about this sinful world. He's endured it all. He has been mistreated and suspected uh, out of envy and jealousy by the leadership of God's people. And they have been following him and looking for an opportunity to destroy him. I don't know how many uh, of these details of Jesus' suffering that you can personally identify with, but if there are people who have been following you in your life, looking for an opportunity to kill you, then you can relate to what Jesus has gone through as he came as the Son of God to relate to everything, the very worst, that we go through. So he's been that's been the reality that he's been facing before chapter 14. And then in chapter 14, he faces this reality that one of his closest friends, one of his intimates who has spent day and night with him for the past 3 years decides to betray him for some money and work with his enemies in their plot to kill him. As for the other disciples, those who vigorously uh, proclaimed their loyalty to Jesus, that they would never leave Him. 
Even the closest of those friends, James, Peter, John, whom Jesus welcomes into the garden to stand watch as He prays, fall asleep over and over again. And when He is betrayed by Judas with a kiss, they run in terror. They flee. He is alone. He is without friend. Peter makes the most dramatic effort to live up to his proclamation of loyalty, that he will not leave Jesus to go through this alone, that he will die with Jesus if need be, follows him into the courtyard. And, when, and while Jesus is inside and the leadership of the government subjects him to their worst possible corruption and miscarriage of justice. And understand, we're not talking about the secular government. We're talking about the leaders of the religious community, church leaders, if you want to put it that way. Those men who were most esteemed for upholding a higher standard of justice in the law of God among God's people. And yet they collect and construct things and cut and paste a distortion of the facts in order to condemn Jesus to death hastily while they have the opportunity. And meanwhile, Jesus' most loyal friend is outside calling down curses as three times in a row he denies even knowing Jesus. Throws his friend under the bus, as we'd use the term. Jesus is utterly alone. And after they condemn him to death and find him worthy of, uh, of execution. Imagine the hate in the eyes of the high priest and the chief priests and scribes of the people as they hit him and slap him and then bind him and bring him over to the secular power, the prefect Pilate, that brutal Roman rule that they so... Uh, hated themselves and yet would use at this time to put away this man of whom they are so envious. And here the man who holds the power of life and death and can execute this man and knows that the motivation of his enemies is malice and envy and is persuaded personally that Jesus is innocent of the crimes that he is being accused of. Nevertheless, for expediency, for his own uh, comfort as ruler to not threaten his position, allows Jesus to be carried off to execution and crucified. Jesus is going through the worst that we can imagine going through. Facing the crowd the crowd of, of, of nationalistically proud Jews. And now he's been, uh, on the one hand, falsely accused of blasphemy and speaking against the temple as though he's anti-Jewish for the sake of the leadership of the Jews. And then when he's given to the Roman authorities, he's accused, on the other hand, of being anti-Caesar, anti-Rome, one who is proclaiming himself king, a political threat guilty of sedition and high treason. And the crowd calls for the release, not of Jesus, 
whom surely they would know as innocent, but of Barabbas, a man guilty of murder. And then he's led away and scourged and subjected to the most barbaric torture imaginable as the flesh of his back is shredded in the scourging. And then he is subjected to mocking and ridicule by the soldiers who dress him up in a purple gown and put a crown of thorns on his head and spit on him and slap him and beat him with their rods. And then... When his clothes are given back to him, the heavy crossbeam of his implement of execution is put on his back and he is forced to carry it. Weakened to the point of collapsing, unable to do so, his tormentors have no choice but to get someone to help him carry the crossbeam the rest of the way outside the city where he is tied and bound to it and then iron spikes are driven through the flesh and bones of his wrists and his feet as he is nailed to the cross and hoisted up on it. He looked for some, the Old Testament said, who might have pity and compassion, but found none. Even those who were being executed on his left and right were mocking him, the crowds passing by. If you're the Son of God, Come down from the cross. He could save others. Apparently, he can't save himself. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, as the Creed puts it. Or, in other words, he descended into hell. right after the moment of death, after this unmitigated descent into darkness, where there isn't the slightest glimmer of light, where Jesus is completely abandoned, where every evil is unleashed on Him as soon as the death occurs, there are glimmers of light. As soon as the death occurs... Little things that are really big things because they proclaim bigger things to come happen. And that barrier between God and man is torn. God recognizing in the crucifixion of His Son Jesus the perfect sacrifice to once for all put away our sin welcomes us into His presence and tears down the barrier symbolized by the curtain separating the holy place of the temple from the courtyard where the priests and worshipers gathered. It is open. Access to God. The door is open that no man can shut. Little glimmers of light. Jesus' closest followers, His disciples, they're all gone. They're hiding behind locked doors. They are waiting for the sound of soldiers' footsteps, worried that the man who has just been executed for high treason against Caesar, that they would be recognized as his followers and be threatened to prosecution and execution as well. They're nowhere to be seen. And yet of all places, 
the very centurion, a Gentile, who oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus, we see a miraculous turnaround here as his heart is open to reconsider everything that has just happened. We might say on one level, oh, a moment too late, but he looks at the way in which Jesus died and he cannot withstand the force of reinterpreting events and saying, this man was certainly the Son of God. Then a member of the Sanhedrin that has uh, initiated the whole process against Jesus and uh, found him worthy of death and handed him over to, uh, got Judas, uh, paid Judas, handed him over to Pilate. A good man, one who was looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises in the coming of kingdom, Joseph of Arimathea, comes and gathers the courage to show honor to this man he knows to be innocent. We don't know if he knows him to be the Messiah, the Son of God, but he does know that he was falsely accused and that he is worthy not of the death of a criminal, but of the dignified and uh, respectful treatment of a good man to be taken down from the cross and buried. That was a high priority among Jews. The law among the Jews was that they would not allow a, a, a man, even an enemy, to hang on a cross or to be exposed in, as a dead body, but should be afforded a decent burial. Well, the chief priests and scribes aren't doing it, but Joseph of Arimathea here, a member of the Sanhedrin, is doing it. Now, where was he when Jesus was being put on trial? We're, we don't know. Speculation, perhaps knowing that Joseph and perhaps another member of the Sanhedrin who was secretly sympathetic to Jesus, Nicodemus, might stand up and not tolerate this farce of a trial, so hastily assembled, perhaps they forgot to tell Joseph that they were meeting. Or maybe Joseph was there, present, and silently undergoing a tremendous struggle as he witnesses the accusations and sees Jesus' response and is going through the inner turmoil of knowing that this is wrong and yet is too timid to stand up for what is right. But at this point, after the death, we see he musters the courage to go to Pilate and ask for the body. Now, what took courage to do that since the Jews put such a high priority on affording even an enemy a decent burial. Well, it is this. Ordinarily, the Romans, who didn't care if criminals were left hanging on the cross until their bodies rotted and were picked, picked at by the, the birds of prey, would grant a Jew, would be sensitive to their sensitivities, would grant the, uh, the request to bury a crucified man, with this exception, if that man was put to death on the charge of high treason against Caesar, he would not be granted a burial under Roman law. So, Joseph, nevertheless, realizing that it might not work, musters the courage to go to Caesar, uh, to, uh, to uh, Caesar's representative, Pilate, and ask for the body of Jesus... <clears throat> Pilate is uh, a little surprised by the thought that Jesus, by the report from Joseph that Jesus was already dead. It could take a couple of days for crucified men to endure the torture 
and finally expire. But Jesus, having been through so much and suffering, uh, not just outwardly but inwardly, the weight of all of our sins under the wrath of God, died relatively quickly. Pilate ascertains that from the centurion. And showing that Pilate didn't really believe that Jesus was guilty all along, defies the rule of, <clears throat> grant, of not granting a burial to a man convicted of high treason and gives the body to Joseph. And Joseph must ask, act quickly because the Sabbath is coming and at sundown the Sabbath would begin. So in the little time that he has between the crucifixion of Jesus and the approach of evening, he runs to the store and buys a linen cloth and hastily wraps Jesus' body up. And Joseph is a, a, a man of, of great means because he owns one of the rare uh, tombs hewn out of the side of, uh, of uh, a rock that could be sealed with this heavy stone and puts him in and buries him in time for the Sabbath and affords this man then, does what he can, to afford this man the decency of a proper burial. As I said, Jesus' disciples were gone. Well, with this exception, the women. And what a powerful testimony these women give to us, even before they find out that Jesus is no longer dead. Peter, James, John... Nowhere to be seen. But these two Marys, along with Salome, they're not abandoning Jesus. We find out that they've followed him since the days of Galilee, a few years back. And they've provided and ministered to his needs. And these women look on. These women are not going to leave their Lord and Savior as He hangs from the cross. Brokenhearted, they stay there and look on from a distance. We don't know a lot about these women except for Mary Magdalene. and We do know from another Gospel account. We are given a hint as to why they are so determined to stay with Jesus. This woman's life was transformed by this man. We read that she uh, was possessed by seven demons that he drove from her. Her life was changed. She was set free. She's not going to abandon him. What an example of courage these women are. They are there when they see Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, come and take the body down. What's happening? They follow from a safe distance. And they note the exact tomb where Jesus is laid. Then Sabbath comes and they rest. But they have a plan. There's one thing that they can do for all that they couldn't do, for their helplessness, for their utter emotional devastation of watching what has just happened. The one thing that they can do is show honor to their dead Lord and friend by anointing His body in a way that would be done for a decent, good man. 
So, as soon as the Sabbath is over, which is Saturday at sundown, they go to the store, they buy the spices, they prepare the uh, anointing, and then at the crack of dawn, as soon as the sun is up, they go to the tomb. They remember exactly where it was. They crouch down. The opening is probably two feet high. And they look in. Well, before they arrive, they've got a problem. For all of their intent of showing Jesus honor in His death, it might all come to naught. They've prepared the burial spices. They are going to do this if they can, but they've got this insurmountable problem of this heavy sealing stone that is easy enough to roll down into its groove for Joseph of Arimathea, but is impossible, certainly, for three women to push up out of its groove in order to get into that small crawling opening of the tomb. Now, if Peter, James, and John were around, they could help. But they're not. And so as they make their way, burdened by grief and bewilderment at, as what, at what has happened, brokenhearted, they are also facing the possibility that even this little token of their love and affection might be thwarted by the fact that there's no one around who will push away the stone. And they are shocked to see that it's already been removed. And when they crouch down and enter into the tomb, they are also surprised to see what we know to be an angel, but what they perceive to be the form of a human being, a man, a young man dressed in white. And this man affirms to them what they believe to be true, that Jesus of Nazareth, so if they're not confused, they're in the right place, they've come to the right tomb. The one who was crucified, okay, this is not an illusion. It really happened. The horrors of, uh, the, of recent days really did occur. He was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. But he is no longer dead. He's not there. Look, that's where the body was. It's not there anymore. He is risen. So now, women, you have a new job. And it is not to come and anoint a dead body for burial, but it is for burial, but it is for proclaiming the resurrection. It, you have the burden then of carrying the news of, of the most fantastic thing that has ever happened in the history of the world since creation. The conquest of death. The new creation. Endless life. Victory over every enemy, even the final enemy of death itself. To these women is given the job, the task, of preaching the first Easter sermon. What is astonishing is that this is given to them, of all people, in a culture that gave no respect whatsoever to the testimony of a woman. It was inadmissible in court. Their Witness, their testimony was regarded, regarded as worthless in a culture where <clears throat> the people who mattered were grown-ups. Jesus honored and exalted the child. In a culture where the people who mattered were males, Jesus ministered to and honored women. Can you think of the times even earlier in the Gospel where he's done this? Six women ministered to and honored by Jesus. Peter's mother-in-law, 
dying of a high fever, healed by Jesus. A little girl of a man named Jairus, lifted from death to life by Jesus. An old woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years and touched the hem of his garment in the press of the crowds and received healing from Jesus. And Jesus says, Who touched me and with fear and trembling, which are words that are used in our account as well, she comes and says it's her and Jesus commends her for her faith. A Gentile woman whose daughter is ill and who has the courage to ask Jesus when he's up there in Syrophoenicia for his help. And Jesus responds by saying, why should I give the bread that belongs to the children? In other words, the Jews. I was sent to the Jews as their Messiah. Why should I give their bread to the dogs, to you Gentiles? And this woman with amazing pluck and courage and faith replies brilliantly by saying, yes, but even the dogs can eat the crumbs that fall from the table of the children. And Jesus says, your faith, your faith, Has saved you. And the widow of the temple that Jesus points to, who is giving her last two pennies into the offering jar. And finally, the woman, Mary, a sister of Lazarus and Martha, who breaks that alabaster jar of expensive, pure nard and anoints his head and feet, and who is being criticized by others at the dinner party whom Jesus commends and says this gospel will not be preached around the world without including a commendation of this woman for what she did for me. And now it is to women in the absence of men who in their fear are hiding behind locked doors that this job is given of proclaiming Jesus' resurrection. Go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee. Just like he said. In their bewilderment, in their astonishment, the angel reminds them of Jesus' actual words. Jesus said this was going to happen. It was all planned out. And you can imagine the women arriving and finding the men in their hiding place. And you can imagine Peter in particular. And the women going to these men knowing that they're not going to be believed. Or if they are, what happens to Peter? Peter's listening. The last time we saw Peter, he was weeping at the end of chapter 14. Remember that? He'd really blown it. He said he wouldn't. And he did. Badly three times in a row, calling down curses, saying that he never knew Jesus. Jesus looked him in the eye as the rooster crowed the second time. And Peter is weeping bitterly. And he's lived with that reality now. Over the course of Friday and through the Sabbath. And now it's Sunday morning and these women are coming and they are saying, Jesus is risen. Go meet him in Galilee. And maybe one of the disciples remembers, oh yes, he did say that. And what's Peter thinking? Well, even if Jesus has risen, 
that doesn't do me any good. I've completely blown it. What about me? Should I bother going to Galilee? I who denied my Lord? And the women get to say to Peter, Yes, Peter, in fact, he mentioned you specifically by name. That he wants the disciples and Peter to meet him. That he's coming to you with full forgiveness and amazing grace. And all your sins are washed away. And Peter, he loves you, even in your failure. Well, at this point, all they have, we don't see the risen Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, according to the original text. We just have the report from the angel, who in all appearances is described as a man. And we have the promise that they will see him. And then we have these women, trembling, astonished, saying nothing to anyone. And it ends with the word, afraid, for they were afraid. What do you think of that ending? Clearly, it didn't sit well with people, even though early Bible scholars right back to Eusebius and Jerome in the 4th century recognized that this clean, neat, tidy, full ending tacked on to the end of Mark was spurious, was not original. Nevertheless, even among scholars who agree, yes, that's the original text, it ends in in verse 8, are still unsettled by its unfinishedness. It sort of leaves everything dangling. But I think a case can be made that Mark's intention is exactly that, that we be left with something that does not appear to be finished, that the pieces be dangling so the audience is forced to work through it. Now, there are... Uh, I, I, I like to compare this, and scholars do compare Mark's style of writing to the writing of a drama, a play. It's so fast-paced and action-filled. And compare, if you will, maybe foreign films, maybe a, a French film or something, to the typical Hollywood film which knows that your average audience member wants a happy ending, wants all of the loose ends tied up neatly in a bow at the end of the film so that you can say, I've watched that, it moved me, and it's done, and I have no unanswered questions, and I can leave that now and move on with my life. Versus this, where all the questions are not answered, where we are left with a fact and with the frailty of human feelings. We are left with this fact that Jesus did die, was buried, and is alive. And with those feelings, that human reality of what we live in, of fear and confusion, bewilderment, one of the words used here is ecstasy. So there is a note of possible joy, but that means stasis is standing and Ek is out of or thrown off of. We're thrown off by this ending. These women were thrown off by this news, by this surprise. I mean, if they were bewildered by the crucifixion of Jesus, at least 
it was a terrible reality that they understood. They understood the corruption of the leadership. They understood the brutality of the Romans. They understood what crucifixion looked like. They understood how to honor a dead body. But they did not understand. They have never been through a resurrection. They did not know how to handle that. What does it mean? What do they do? And so they're filled with, well, it's a thrill, but there's also a fear, the unknown. That's what we're left with to work through ourselves. Here is the reality. How does that fit into your life? What are you going to do with it? And we hear it in ourselves with fear and trembling. I think the case can be made, especially when you think of Mark's original audience, if you remember this ancient tradition that we have no reason to doubt, that Mark is writing the memories and the preaching of Peter in the city of Rome... As now under Emperor Nero, Peter is about to die under the first government-sanctioned persecution of the church. And so Mark is writing down Peter's memories. And, and what a lovely thought when, when Peter recalls how the women said the disciples and Jesus specifically mentioned me by name. What grace. But here, Mark is writing it down for a church that is about to lose the eyewitness, the one who did know Jesus, who told them about Jesus. They didn't meet Jesus. They haven't seen Him face to face. But they hear the report that this Savior died and rose again for their sakes. And now the pressure is on. Persecution is upon them. And they are threatened. Very much like the disciples in this situation. Very much like these women. They don't see the risen Jesus. They hear a report. And they are given the promise that they will see Him. And 30 years later, 35 years later, in the city of Rome, the church is exactly that. Nothing dramatic has changed in their situation. Rome is still in power. It's gotten worse, in fact, under Nero. They're still the despised, tiny movement. And now they're threatened. So the reality of the situation, right? This, this fact that they are presented with, that's testified to the explanation of that empty tomb. He is risen. The promise, you will see Him. So Peter writes in his first epistle these opening words. It just fits so beautifully together in my mind. 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father, verse 3, of our Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 3, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Isn't that exactly the situation that Mark 
is ministering to there in Rome. Isn't that exactly our situation as well? And I think the argument can be made that far from being unsatisfying, this sort of loose ends dangling ending of Mark is very sensitive and appropriate for our circumstances. This is where we find ourselves. Not seeing the risen Jesus, but receiving the report that He's risen and the promise that we will see Him. And now what are we going to do with it? In our fear and trembling where nothing's changed, where the forces of Rome are upon us. Easter morning, what has changed? Well, these things have not changed. The Sanhedrin is still in power. Pilate is still the prefect. The centurions and Roman soldiers still occupy. The disciples knew that. That's why they were hiding. And yet, those little things, harbingers of a change. What's changed? The temple's still standing. But not the barrier. What's changed? Rome is still in power. But one of its officials, a centurion, was converted. Just a little glimmer that little a little chip out of the out of the monolith of Rome. It started, right? Aslan's on the move. Look at the thermometer. The temperature is going up very slowly, but it's going up. Narnia, you can read it. <laughs> What's changed? The Sanhedrin's still there, but one of their members who was a secret follower of Jesus, perhaps, or at least believed in his, in his um, innocence, one of their members found the courage somewhere within himself to honor this man. Little glimmer. His followers, scattered, terrified, but these women, they were watching. What's changed? This has changed. And it's going to change everything. Jesus is alive. Jesus who went through everything. Everything. He was a zygote. He was a fetus. He was a newborn. He was poor. He went through everything. You might say, well, I'm 90 years old and Jesus didn't live my experience as an aged person, well, he was stripped of his dignity, his driver's license was taken from him, he lost all of his independence, and he suffered degradation. The worst of old age, he endured it all in a very condensed and intense form. So, really, whatever you've gone through, and the worst stuff that you might fear going through, Jesus has gone through it. And he's gone through it in such a way that it ends in life, in victory. So, the other day a dear friend said, our church is going through some challenges that are new, that we've never gone through before, uncharted territory. I understand, that's fearful. We haven't been through this before. What do we do? It's scary. But I come to you with this news. 
this ending of the story to tell you that there is no uncharted territory. It's all charted. It's all mapped. It's all explored. It's all discovered. Jesus went ahead and went through it all, right to the the burial, to the sealed tomb. Everything didn't stop at 90% or 95% or 99%, but 100% of all of our sorrows, acquainted with 100% of all of our griefs, degradations, humiliations, sufferings, experiencing all of the evil, all of the darkness, all of it, all of it. And He has transformed it all in victory, into life. No fear. Yes, fear, but no fear. This is the reality. I'm glad for the reality. We too have a report that Jesus has has risen. Not one of us has seen Him in the flesh. But we have the report from the eyewitness, and we have the promise that we will see Him. And with fear and trembling, we are given the commission. Now go tell it to other people. Now go into your life circumstances where so little, if anything, has changed on the outside and the darkness is still all around us, but we have this light inside now. We face all of this, all of our frailty now with this fact that Jesus has conquered death. That He's taken all of our darkness and He's swallowed it up in light. That's the fact that now we proceed into the danger zones with. All of it. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you, O God, and we pray that that light that calls us out of our sleep, awake, O sleeper, and Christ will shine upon you, Paul writes. God, in the darkest of times, cause your light to shine in us. And remember that we are fixing our eyes on Jesus who is the author and the perfecter, the beginning, the end, the one who has been through and has won the race that is set before us. So as the author of Hebrews tells us, O Lord, help us to disentangle ourselves from sin and everything that will hold us back and to run the race that is set before us, not in our own strength, but keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus who endured the cross and scorned its shame and is now seated at your right hand. Consider Him. So God, meet us in our fear and weakness and cause that light to glow brightly in us and guide us through this difficult journey of life, knowing that none of it has been untouched by the feet of Jesus Himself and that its destiny is pure light 
Thank you, O God, that now we can look forward to eating and drinking with Jesus who vowed that He would not taste the fruit of the vine until He drinks it with us in the kingdom and now meets with us to raise this glass to life.